Hello, I'm Ryan Boll, a Stratfor Middle East and North Africa analyst at RAIN. This podcast is brought to you by RAIN Worldview, powered by Stratfor, the world's leading geopolitical intelligence platform. Learn more at worldview.stratfor.com. And in that dissonance, what was lost was why were the Taliban successful? Why were people upset with the Western-backed government? And why weren't we able to see? It was beyond the ideals of democracy. It was very basic demands that people had across the country. Welcome to Baker's Dozen, a podcast series about geopolitics from Stratfor, part of the Rain Insight podcast series. We've just passed one month since the Taliban took over Kabul and declared victory in Afghanistan. There's been no shortage of blame and recriminations passed around over the loss of Afghanistan and the chaotic final days of the U.S. presence in the country. Considerable attention has also been paid to the risks of terrorism or instability spilling from Afghanistan and the social policies of the Taliban inside Afghanistan. What is often missing is an understanding of Afghanistan itself both in its internal construct and in its regional context. I'm joined today by Hamid Hakimi, an analyst and policy researcher focused, among other things, on Afghanistan, Pakistan, and the regional connectivity between South and Central Asia. Mr. Hakimi is a research associate at Chatham House in London and a member of the Magdalene College and the Department of Sociology at the University of Cambridge. Thank you for joining me today, Hamid. Thanks for having me. So as we look at the Taliban's transition from an insurgency to a governing body, what are some of the underlying challenges that, quite frankly, any central leadership would face in Afghanistan? Well, as soon as they took over, um, I was looking at the various messages coming out of the movement following their social media, but also looking at the long-standing trends. And I, and I, in my view, the three main challenges remain for the Taliban, and they haven't fully grasped either of those three. The first one is that obviously the government that the United States-led international coalition supported since 2001 collapsed, uh, and and that's why the Taliban uh, pretty much took over the entirety of the country, with a few exceptions, on the 15th of August. Uh, so the Taliban effectively have inherited a collapsed state. The state has collapsed. Its economic governance and security structures have all fallen. Uh, so that is number one void for them to fill. Uh, so they have a political, security and economic void that they've inherited uh, to fill. The second one is uh, an unfolding humanitarian catastrophe uh, that predates uh, the current uh, phase of conflict and unfortunately uh, is marked in a way by Afghanistan's long-standing status as one of the world's leading refugee source countries uh, that has for decades produced you know, long, large numbers of refugees and internally displaced populations. Um, with the droughts, the ecological, environmental challenges, conflict and significant levels of poverty increasing uh, in the recent years, uh, that humanitarian catastrophe really reached its uh, kind of current peak as uh, the Taliban swept across the country, fighting ensued in the south, in the north, and around Kabul. And uh, we saw 
tens of thousands of people running away from their homes, uh, you know, uh, camping effectively in the in the public parks in Kabul uh, just to run away uh, to, to save their lives. And that kind of humanitarian catastrophe compounded by mass unemployment uh, is going to be another, um, you know, huge hill for the Taliban to climb. And lastly, I think the Taliban really are very keen not to be seen the kind of pariah state or regime that they were effectively ruling us in 96 to 2001. They want international relations. They also have seen how their predecessors in government have benefited, even if that is just personal gains. Uh, but the transformative impact of international relations and the aid that comes, uh, I think that is very keen for the Taliban's leadership to maintain. And these three challenges are still things that the Taliban are really, you know, dealing with. And kind of lastly, the main focus, I think, should also remain on the Taliban's own internal struggles. Uh, so some of the fragmentations and fault lines that might have existed, which would have been camouflaged by uh, their joint uh, fight or jihad against this, you know, powerful superpower led effort in Afghanistan, uh, we will see some of those fragmentations appear. And I think we'll see signs of that and the difficulty that they face in agreeing on administration, uh, administrative issues, you know, division of uh, resources and whatever power they've inherited through the institutions that have largely collapsed, as I said. So we will have to watch that space. The Taliban will struggle with their own uh, un you know, unity and uniformity in a way. Uh, that perhaps never existed, but perhaps that we um, didn't see because, you know, they were fighting as an insurgency. Well, let's let's tease that out a bit, because when we look at, um, you know, a, a lot of assessments sort of have sort of put the Taliban as a single monolithic entity um, and, and look at Afghanistan uh, often through a Western lens. So the perception is you have a monolithic Taliban that is outdated and trying to assert their old ideas, and then the rest of Afghanistan, which is this trying to emerge into the modern world type of space. But Afghanistan is a tremendously complex space. Um, and, and we even see that obviously in this, this competition within the Taliban itself, that the Taliban is not even one thing. It's made up of different uh, tribal interests and different regional interests and, and different ideological interests that that have had a common opponent but now uh do not any longer let's tease apart from a geopolitical perspective then how should we understand uh afghanistan underneath everything right looking beyond the 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 political borders on the map um how do we understand this space that is afghanistan to better perceive what the Taliban is, or what the likelihood of stability is in this country? That's a that's an interesting, fascinating question. I think it's it's an excellent one in that it really you know reaches the heart of the issue here, because you know I have long argued that when in the West we've looked at the map of Afghanistan, we've seen either administrative divisions, we've seen terrain, we've seen geographic division, and all of these kinds of things that are tangible. Uh, tangibly visible to us, uh, whereas for the Taliban and the kind of organic uh, movements in a way, 
you know, some would argue the Taliban are not really necessarily organic because they were a proxy and they are a proxy of Pakistan. But but obviously they do have a constituency within Afghanistan and they, they draw on those symbols and framings that, that are very much part of the context of Afghanistan. So when we look at the maps, we see all these kinds of technical details. But underneath these maps, what the Taliban were able to read, and it actually is, uh, uh, is testament to their success of sweeping the country in the last uh, months or so, uh, is that they were able to see the human terrain, the fact that underneath all of these assumptions and binaries that we've created in the West of the rural and the urban and the tribal and the non-tribal, underneath all of this, what is very central to the Afghan society is the notion of loyalty and the fluidity of that loyalty that changes as service delivery as expectations of the populations, and all of these dynamics shift. So the Taliban were very much uh, a product, a successful product of the failures of international effort uh, post-2001. And, and that is because as the government, uh, propped up by the Western money, failed to deliver services, failed to reach uh, out to the populations in, in uh, areas beyond just the Kabul city, uh, the Taliban were able to come in and capitalize on those vacuums, on those uh, grievances and on those uh, various kinds of uh, very kind of human level uh, dissatisfactions that existed. And they were able to mobilize support uh, among those segments of population against what was increasingly a corrupt system that was not delivering for the citizens. So I think when we look at Afghanistan from a ge geographic perspective, there's also this thing about we see it as part of, I don't know, different regions. Uh, it's very interesting when I worked in policy, uh, sort of very much with the governments, you know, Western governments thinking around policy making on Afghanistan. Afghanistan would normally be bundled together with South Asia and the Western thinking. And when I would go into Afghanistan and think and talk about these policies with the Afghan officials, they were very much seeing themselves as Central Asian. And so there was this kind of dissonance between what Afghans saw themselves to be as a society, at least in the elite level, um, and what we considered them to be from the outside. In reality, Afghanistan is almost like a roundabout. It, it is attached uh, to Iran, sort of West Asia, Middle East. It's attached to Pakistan, formerly British India. That's South Asia. It's attached very small kind of border with China up in the northern areas of Afghanistan. And then also on the northern side is attached to Central Asian uh, former Soviet states. And so it's really at the periphery of all these regions. But internally, what people often see themselves in Afghanistan was this kind of, you know, we're the heart of Asia. I know we are this place where if there is no peace, there would be no peace in the regions around us, which might actually be true. But there was always this dissonance between the international perspective and what the Afghans perceived things to be. And in that dissonance, what was lost was why were the Taliban successful? Why were people upset with the Western-backed government? And why weren't we able to see that actually people were asking for very simple things like service delivery, which might sound simple, but you know it's very essential 
to everyday life. So it was beyond the ideals of democracy. It wasn't all about the ideals and ideas. It was very basic demands that people had across the country, which was, you know, uh, can my children go to school uh, without us having to pay a bribe? Do I have access to health care? Can I travel on the highway without worrying about the security situation? Can I go to the capital city to demand services from the central government without having to pay a bribe? And all these kinds of very basic things that people wanted. They just wanted to get on with their lives. And I think the international intervention at one point or another was trying to divert this country uh, around its own strategic uh, 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 direction that the Afghan government then had to per performatively, in a way, uh, comply with. And I think all of that created this kind of dissonance that we're still dealing with and we're still confused as to how did the Taliban took over so quickly. Right. It's it's interesting as you as you talk about this because we have two different dynamics here. One is a very localized dynamic of just let me live my life and um and not fear uh uh violence or or extortion um and and that and then there's this larger perception either of where does afghanistan fit perceive itself fitting in the region or how do other countries look at it and historically afghanistan has been a transit route and it's been a buffer between between big powers um and, and this sort of space and that that seems to create this this dissonance between how the outside powers who get involved in Afghanistan view the country and how the country or the people of the country view themselves. What are some of the other legacies of this this Afghanistan being at a crossroads, being at an intersection of these big powers? Um, what are the legacies that that has on whether or not we could see an Afghanistan pulled together as a cohesive entity, or is it something that's always going to be caught in these tensions around its periphery? As far as the idea of uh, feeling a nation, a sense of nationhood, it does exist in Afghanistan. The geography of Afghanistan had a semblance of what we would see in the kind of post-colonial period uh, an emergence of the nation states in the region prior to that phenomenon you did have uh, an entity in Afghanistan that was the state you had an semblance of a government of a territorial role uh, so so the idea and the aspirations of nationhood existed in Afghanistan prior to World War One and arguably before World War uh, sorry prior to World War Two and before World War One. Um, but but I think some of the misconceptions arise when we hear things like the Afghans were never a nation; they will never be a nation, uh, or that they are tribal society. I think these are frankly uh, you know disproven by evidence that that's actually not true the afghans uh, have throughout the history tried to create and and strive towards having a state that is functioning they did actually have a state uh, including in the in the interwar periods of world war 2 where they remained non-aligned they were an active member of the united nations way before many other members joined or were created but what has happened is afghanistan and the kind of almost uh, a psychological um, kind of you know break has been pushed in Afghanistan among the population vis-a-vis -vis South Asia, um, the the country that has emerged that is 
Pakistan out of the British India. This was uh, a territory that historically the Pashtun populations, the Pashtun ethnic group lived uh, together. Then was, you know, 1893, the Duran line slashes them in the middle. And the Afghan state that emerged after 1919, um, that particular entity and post that period, the Afghans have never been able to accept that there is a big, powerful country next door called Pakistan. They were never able to snap out of that. And there's still, you know, the idea of a Pashtunistan or a Pashtun unification kind of still has meaning in Afghanistan because they see it through that pre- kind of, you know, 1947 moment when Pakistan emerged out of India, greater India. And in Pakistan, unfortunately, what, what it meant was because the Pakistani state emerged out of uh, the British colonial experience, and referring back to your point about this notion of a buffer state, they, in the security establishment and the elite establishment of Pakistan after 1947, were never able to see Afghanistan as a country that was able to, uh, you know, rise on its own, that has to be uh, seen as an equal, if not in size and in population terms, but in terms of status, it's a country uh, that requires, uh, you know, equal relationships. So Pakistan saw Afghanistan as an extension of their own insecurities about an Indian encirclement. And Afghans saw Pakistan as this kind of pre uh, 40, 1947 moment of well this nation has emerged on the lands that used to be Pashtun so that kind of animosity carried on and has given birth to other things uh, which we see to this day so some of those post-colonial realities um, have pretty much uh, damned the moment that we live in today uh, and, and I think it's important to know that in fact all of these entities emerging in post-colonial period have these kinds of uh, characteristics of leaving some tensions among populations. But in Afghanistan and Pakistan's case, unfortunately, it's been quite heightened by the political elite on both sides and not necessarily by the people. So as, as we look at that dynamic, then there's still obviously when you when you look at Afghanistan, there's this question, what's the influence uh, or the interests of Pakistan? There were the questions the ISI chief heading there. The Iranians have... Uh, have historical uh, and and religious affiliations inside Afghanistan and, and an interest that leans in there. Uh, clearly, the the Central Asian states do. You know, the 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 old Northern Alliance and now the new resistance force is heavily made up of ethnic Tajiks and maybe some ethnic Uzbeks. Uh, the Russians have a have some interest there to protect Central Asia. The Chinese, obviously, with the questions of the Uyghurs, but also the security of their Silk Road. We see the Turks coming in now, um, and and other countries from from the Middle East, from the Gulf states, coming in, uh, all with different ideas of what they want to get out of Afghanistan. Um, that that really portends the resumption of proxy competition uh, within this space. In thinking in the, the the complexities of the inside of Afghanistan, you know what what should we be watching for if we do start seeing this type of proxy? Uh, activity stirring up again, and what are the the risks or challenges for these countries uh, re-engaging in that manner? Well, just to kind of very briefly um, give you my opinion on Iran and Pakistan, because I believe these are the two more important neighbors 
because of the, sh- the size of their borders with Afghanistan, because of the millions of Afghan refugees living in both countries, and also because they've had more interaction with Afghanistan uh, than the newly emerging uh, Central Asian states. Uh, well, in Iran's case, for instance, they uh, historically are anti-Taliban, but as the United States policies uh, were producing, um, uh, let's say, uh, unwelcoming results for Iran in Afghanistan, Iran started to cultivate relationships with the Taliban. And the Taliban have been able to maintain, um, uh, in my view, slightly warmer relationship with Iran than they had in, in the 1990s to 2001 period. Uh, so Iran's main interest is obviously the Shia community that lives in Afghanistan, that they have cultural ties and religious ties with Iran, although Afghanistan has not suffered from the kind of sectarian violence, luckily, that uh, unfortunately has uh, uh, you know, been the case in Iraq or even in Iran for that matter. Uh, Afghanistan does not have the same Shia-Sunni violence dynamics, although with the threat of ISIS-K, the ISIS-Khorasan, that could be one of the things that we might see emerging if because they are obviously they, they don't see the shias as proper muslims uh, so iran wants to protect that that relationship and that kind of um, uh, contact with the afghan shias uh, the the other one is uh, uh, iranian uh, environmental challenges are very much shared by afghanistan so the drought and the regions of iran that border afghanistan have severe water shortage issues that have major economic and social implications for iran and the water uh, flowing from Afghanistan, whatever amount that is, uh, it allows the Iranian side to uh, either prosper or if they don't, if the water doesn't flow, then obviously it impacts Iranian prosperity. So Iran wants to have a maintain, you know, wants to maintain that right to the to the natural uh, resources that that flow from Afghanistan, especially water. And then there is the issue of the refugees that the Iranians would like to. Uh, make sure that there isn't an influx because they don't see the uh, Afghan refugee uh, inflow into Iran as a as as a as a positive thing at least, or, or you know in some cases see it as a threat. Um, and then, so within all these dynamics, they're happy to support a Taliban regime if it can protect Iranian interest, you know, in these at least these three. Uh, uh, areas. Well, the Pakistanis, uh, they have always, always had uh, uh, a strategic depth look at Afghanistan. And the view and their view is that we that they did not want to see an India uh, influenced Afghanistan state or an India friendly Afghanistan state. And they uh, feel that if that happens, it would uh, allow India to encircle Pakistan, not only through its border with Pakistan, but also through Afghanistan's borders with Pakistan. And that would, uh, you know, significantly uh, threaten Pakistan national security. So that is why uh, Pakistan has been so heavily invested in supporting the Taliban and ensuring that if there is a state failure, that the entity that takes over or the group that takes over is Pakistan friendly. And Pakistan obviously also has wider interests, the BRI and uh, the CPEC, China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, uh, with the Chinese investment in Pakistan, Pakistan is very keen to ensure that there is some stability, some control of the Pakistanis in Afghanistan, to uh, that it doesn't scare the Chinese investment away from Pakistan. And so these are the kind of dynamics at play. But the trouble is, uh, I was looking at figures, for example, in early 2021, 
um, the Afghan parliament passed and the annual budget of the country, uh, it was $6 billion. And if you think about it, that is $500 million a month. So for a government that was corrupt, that did not deliver good services, and that had a lot of issues, they were still, you know, uh, arguably spending $500 million on the country a month. So for the Taliban to match even a bad government, they have to somehow find $500 million a month uh, to match the previous government spending. And this budget was smaller than, the, than, than, than some other budgets in the past. And obviously the international aid was dwindling and there was an active conflict, uh, an insurgency with the Taliban. So when all of these dynamics come together, it's very difficult for one group to monopolize power. And that will also apply to the Taliban. So they need to, they will have to, ensure some kind of inclusivity. Otherwise, all these countries that we numbered, and, and yourself as well, they have their contacts with the various communities, but also within these communities with specific figures uh, that do not necessarily represent the communities, but they're kind of self-appointed strongmen or proxy individuals that can mobilize trouble against the Taliban. And uh, I arguably... Uh, you know, work in, in favor of the interest of this, des you know, this very kind of diverse set of interests uh, of these countries. Uh, the last point on this issue, I would say, is what is interesting is that you've seen a cluster of countries that were not necessarily friendly with the U.S. policies in the region coming together. Um, so, for example, Iran, Pakistan, Russia and China uh, have maintained embassies in Kabul where everyone else had to evacuate and left and their embassies have been ransacked by the Taliban fighters. Uh, Turkey, Qatar uh, have come together and are trying to help the Taliban re-operationalize the Kabul airport. UAE and Saudi Arabia, who were historically quite close uh, with the Afghan, various episodes of Afghan Islamists, they have stepped aside really. They're not really interested and they're kind of watching the space from what I can see. And the Russians are at the moment really clear about their interest, which is ensuring that ISIS threat does not cross into Central Asia. And within the Central Asian countries, you have Uzbekistan that is very keen because it's a double landlocked country, not just landlocked, it's a double landlocked country. It's very keen to establish economic connectivity with, with South Asia. The only route is Afghanistan. Um, but the other Central Asians are not very happy with what's happening in Afghanistan. Notably, Tajikistan uh, has been very vocal about their disagreement with the way the Taliban have announced an interim government that excludes practically all the Tajiks. Uh, and not just that, it is purely uh, aligned along the lines of the factions of the Taliban. So even if we look at it from a Pashtun ethnic lens, you know, it doesn't really represent the Pashtun diversity either. And the Taliban actually reject that they see diversity and inclusivity along ethnic lines. They have their own calculations of what these terms mean. And again, this goes back to what we said earlier about the dissonance around meanings and perceptions. Well, I know um, we could go on and on, and this is this is a, a, a terribly interesting discussion and trying to tease apart some of these underlying threads of how to define Afghanistan. And it's important for us to keep exploring this However, today we run out of time. So I, I do want to uh, thank you, Hamid, 
for joining us today, and maybe we'll pick up this conversation at another time. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Hamida Kami is an analyst focused on South and Central Asia and a research associate at Chatham House in London. Stay up to date on the latest geopolitical developments at Rain Worldview, powered by Stratfor. Visit worldview.stratfor.com. That's worldview.stratfor.com. I'm Roger Baker, and thank you for listening.